today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, will Justin Trudeau let Jody Wilson-Raybould speak? The OPP has a brand new commissioner. Is everybody happy? And North Korea is lighting up test rockets again. What happened to the bromance between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The Conservatives putting pressure on the federal government to allow Jody Wilson-Raybould to speak uh, fully about what happened. Uh, not just, well, she was Attorney General and have even launched a website uh, putting pressure on, uh, of course, uh, the government to get her to tell the rest of the story. Let her speak.ca to find out more. Tim Powers is with us, Vice Cha- uh, Chairman Summa Strategies and has served as uh, advisors to national parties and cabinet ministers and such. He is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem, Scott. You're going to hear lots of airport background noises. I'm in Vancouver, so I apologize for that in advance, but that's the best I can do this morning. Hey, no problem. We're just glad to have you here. Your thoughts on where this has progressed to date? Where is it? Where do we go from here? We seem to be stuck in limbo. Yeah, kind of at a crossroads, I think. Uh, the government is hoping that uh, that they've been able to slow or stop the bleeding that uh, they have inflicted upon themselves over the last month. Um, the prime minister seems to be sticking now to this uh, this line of contrition or regret, but it, but but uh, then uh, suggesting nothing wrong was done. Uh, he's hoping that's enough. The conservatives and the NDP are trying to keep this story going. Uh, I think the conservatives gotten a little smarter now, so instead of sheer just constantly barking for the prime minister's resignation, they had this news conference yesterday to launch this website called Letter Speak, which is about getting Jody Wilson-Rabel uh, back at committee. There's an emergency meeting of that committee this week where they're going to address this and where they're also hoping that the government will uh, lift um, the, the, the remaining restrictions on her testimony. So that's what they're going to try and do. I think they probably can muster some public opinion for that. I think it's hard for the government to make the case that Michael Wernick can go back and respond to his comments. Uh, or sorry, to comments and testimony that was made that had direct relevance on him, but somehow Jody Wilson-Raybould can't. So I think the Conservatives are going to keep pushing that to see if they can create enough public pressure to get her back at committee and then see what news she has to say and how that drives the story from there. Uh, by waiting longer, are the Liberals not just dragging this out? Why not just put her up there, let's move on, keep it going? I think they're they're worried about new dimensions of the story appearing, that being why she stepped down, uh, what new information, because there seemed to be a suggestion both in Michael Wernick's testimony and in the uh, and, and even in some of the shadings of, of, of the words of Gerald Butts that there might be a little bit of new information there. Uh, Jody Wilson-Rabel, you know, was a very credible witness. Um, no doubt she would likely be again. So I think they're worried if she does go back, uh, if she does speak about uh, cabinet, uh, her her decision to resign from cabinet, that that will create new layers to the story, which will require weeks and weeks of new explanations and distraction from uh, what they want to be the focus now, which is their budget on March 19th. So I think that's their holding game. If the, if the door gets open to her going back, new storylines, uh, and the spotlight off the budget next week. And again, this all comes back to him, the Prime Minister, removing her from the Attorney General uh, portfolio. He's still using the the reason that uh, this was, you know, a domino effect from Scott Bryson. Not this, right? Like, uh, I, I yeah. think that's been been debunked, uh, and it's hard for the average Canadian to figure out why. You know, Scott Bryson, who wasn't in an aligned ministry, somehow mm-hmm. he now retired, working in the banking sector, was responsible for Jody Wilson-Raybould being there. And if Jody Wilson-Raybould was still there, wouldn't she be under the some degree of pressure? It's a foolish storyline that they've tried to introduce. But uh, as you say, I think it's tra- largely been debunked that it's a, an accurate one. And at the end of the day, so, do, you know, if Canadians are picking up on this, they know right from wrong here. Um, again, can they, and I'm assuming they see that the reason he fired her as Attorney General was to get her out of the way so he could have this decision made. 
And he hasn't said, I, I mean, because he now has this line that you should be constantly looking at, um, at, at, at legal actions. And, of course, Friday was a big day. The, the, the court said that uh, there would be no judicial intervention on the uh, Crown Prosecutor, the Public Prosecution's Office, right to, uh, to not use a DPA. So uh, he, you know, he, he's, he's, he's just hoping that he can sell, he being the Prime Minister here, the, the version of two different perspectives. Nothing wrong happened here. Uh, and, uh, and all the while still keep a door open to a potential deferred prosecution agreement for, uh, for SNC-Lavalin. I think if they do go forward or if there is some deferred prosecution agreement for SNC-Lavalin, uh, this story is going to, uh, you know, explode even further if that's possible. Talk about the significance of the case over the weekend, because again, we know that that, that uh, federal prosecutors have already said the deal doesn't apply here. Now, what happened in this court when uh, SNC asked a judge to try for this? What happened this past weekend? Uh, well, the, the, the judge said uh, the government has absolute right to decide how it will go forward, and that uh, uh, that it is within their ballywick to decide whether they proceed with a deferred prosecution agreement or not. So. Um, the SNC wasn't able to get the court to say that this was a remedy that must be required. So that was a big victory for um, the, pro- the director of public prosecutions. And more importantly, makes it, it continues to make it difficult for the current adjust- justice minister uh, to, uh, to intervene because, it, it, again, it would look like they're acting in the interests of, of SNC over above the interests of many other Canadians. I mean, as I said, I'm in Vancouver. I have talked to lots of people in the West this weekend. I've had lots of emails from people in Saskatchewan and Alberta who are already irritated to a large degree with the government and their focus on Quebec as opposed to the industrial challenges in their region. This place, in large measure, the Western region, is simmering with anger about about the potential that the government would help a company that may or may not lose 9,000 jobs, because we don't know on the facts around that, versus a region that's already, you know, arguably lost over 100,000 jobs because of the changes in the extraction industries. Uh, what about uh, critics now uh, saying that the uh, the, the nine thousand jobs thing is overinflated? That it's fear mongering. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, sorry, can you, I just lost you there for a second, Scott. Uh, there, yeah. As you mentioned, there were there were there was lots of talk over the weekend that uh, the nine thousand jobs was a bogus yeah. figure. That there was no proof of that, and that this was fear mongering. Your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, I, I mean, that's probably the weakest element of the government's case. Jerry Butts, as, as we talked about the other day, was asked about this 9,000 figure at the uh, at the committee hearing, and he, he was asked directly by Elizabeth May, you know, have, do you have any reports? Do you have anything that suggests that this figure is real? And he said no. Uh, and again, if this whole case hinges on giving things extra scrutiny and, and being thorough, how can the government predicate all of its actions on completely believing the fact that SNC, what SNC is telling them, that there are 9,000 jobs at stake? And there's lots of information out there to challenge that and SNC's existence in Quebec. If there were a change, for example, um, SNC signed a deal with the Castipo, which is a large investment fund in Quebec, that they would stay in Quebec until 2024. Um that seems to get forgotten in this debate. So I don't, how, how are they going to shut down if one of their biggest funding arms, uh, they've already agreed to their biggest funding, with their biggest funding arm, that they're going to exist there. So how successful has the government been in neutralizing this? I think they've had some success because you've certainly seen people come out and challenge Jody Wilson-Rabel. Um, the polls this week will really tell how successful they've been. Uh, have they picked now, if they manage to stop the, the bits of sliding that's been that have been seen in different polls, um, you know, they're, they're, I, I don't know yet. I think, as I say, there's been some minimal success, but I don't think they're out of the woods on this yet, and they're still in a very vulnerable place. What about those in the province of Quebec? We certainly know how they feel about uh, about this crown jewel, but uh, are they looking at it differently now, considering where we are, especially with this latest uh, case that uh, SNC has tried uh, and lost over the weekend? Um, how are they viewing this? Uh, because, again, it certainly doesn't look too good for SNC. 
Well, I think, you know, it's wrong to ascribe this one homogenous view to Quebec that everybody in Quebec uh, is, is doesn't really care about what happened to Jody Wilson-Rabel or allegedly happened to her and what happened uh, through the, the process of the prime minister's office presenting pressure and that somehow they only care about these jobs. I think, look, I think people in Quebec are looking at this and saying, okay, I, I you know, I can buy some of the prime minister's argument, but this still wasn't the best way to go about things. Um, uh, the, the polls in Quebec, I don't think have moved that much for the liberals, which is probably good. And as we have talked about before, the liberal game is to win seats in Quebec in the next election because the NDP are failing. Uh, if the NDP numbers start to pick up because of this in Quebec, that will be a real sign that uh, things are, are struggling a little bit there for them. But uh, again, we probably need a week or two to see that play itself out. So will we see Jody Wilson-Raybould speak again, do you think? I think it's going to be tougher this time, but it's hard to imagine that she won't have the opportunity to tell her story. Uh, and I think, again, because of the big brand, overall brand challenge that is presented because of, uh, of, of the prime minister establishing himself as a feminist prime minister and this being a front and center issue, that if he if she doesn't speak, that continues to hurt their brand. Are you surprised how the prime minister has handled this? How the PMO has handled this? No, no, because they haven't been very good at dealing oh, with dealing with crisis, and uh, they've shown in the past that when they have uh, when they have had their back against the wall, they don't know how to get out of it. I am surprised. Thank you. It's taken them this long to find uh, find a compelling story, uh, but they seem now, after four weeks, to have found a story. They're certainly, if they've learned anything, they're going to have to get better at playing uh, defense when they back themselves into a corner. Uh, the prime minister hasn't really apologized for anything, but he says he's learned. <laughs> but he says he's learned a lot from it. Uh, but he doesn't really elaborate on that. What do you think he's learned from this? Yeah, I think that's, and I think that's where they're still vulnerable. I think some of the feedback that I've seen in commentary that I've seen is that, you know, this was a very limp effort to say that uh, to 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 acknowledge that you had erred, that uh, worse than uh, not giving an apology, have given an apology, and they've learned. But I don't think he's spoken about those lessons. Maybe we'll see some evidence of that. For example. You know, do we get an announcement in the next few weeks that suggests Michael Wernick's term is done? And then he can say, look, uh, I've, I've learned to make some changes there. There are staff changes coming, but it's not evident where the learning is. If you were grading him, you wouldn't be able to give him a most improved mark or an improved mark because you can't see where the changes are or where the lessons are that he says he's, uh, he's picked up. Uh, you, you brought up the clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Wernick. Uh, has he helped or hurt the government in his two appearances? Hurt. <laughs> yeah. I mean, why would they? He, why would they put him up there twice then? Well, I, I, perhaps they'd hope they'd see a different performance in the, in the second go around. And I, he opened a whole new storyline, as you know, when he talked about uh, having received a call from the chairman of SNC. And that chairman, of course, had held the job that Wernick had held, and that reinforced the brand that if you know you know somebody in the government or you know you're a powerful person, that you can uh, get results quicker than the average person. And his very uh, ill-conceived comments about not wearing a wire and he couldn't recollect the specifics of conversation made him look like an old-school um, uh, male leader in a government that promised that there wouldn't be any old-school practices at play. Um, I mean, that's not to take away. I, I think, you know, I, I know Mr. Wernick in other capacities done a lot of good work, but uh, it's clear that he is not somebody who should be speaking often on behalf of the government because that isn't his strength. Uh, will the prime minister replace him? Does that help the situation? It could. Um, and I think you've seen there's a lot of uh, consternation being expressed also by the opposition that Mr. Wernick is on the committee to uh, oversee the interference in the elections. I think they need to do something there. Mr. Wernick near the end of his career anyway, so uh, he was nearing retirement. I, I would be surprised if he were in this position a year from now. So it's just a question perhaps of 
accelerating retirement. Uh, we've talked before how women and the indigenous community, two big boxes that the liberals uh, want to check off and do so with this prime minister. Obviously, last week, uh, the prime minister apologizing in regard to the tuberculosis era with indigenous communities, uh, obviously timed well. Does that help at all? I mean, is that the answer here? Just keep pushing apologies out. Um, I don't think that's, you know, yeah, I think those issues are still front and center for the, uh, for the government. I think there's still anger about all of that. I think a lot of healing has to occur. Uh, and I think indigenous communities in particular are going to be watching all of this. You've seen on the, on the, the gender equity front that, uh, you know, other liberal MPs have spoken out about the way they've been treated and that, uh, that, that storyline hasn't abated either. All right, Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. And, Scott, I've boarded the plane in this whole time, so well done. We started at the gate. Now I'm about to sit down and fly back to Ottawa. Always a pleasure. You know what? I could tell you were in the middle of all this, and, man, you pulled it off beautifully. We thank you so much. <laughs> all right, buddy. Take, take care. Take Bye. care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Ontario government has appointed a new commissioner for the OPP. Thomas uh, Thomas Carrick is the new OPP commissioner. He was uh, formerly the deputy chief for York Regional Police. Uh, joining us now to talk all about this, retired police officer Kevin Bryan. He's a professor at Seneca College and with us now. Kevin, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, good afternoon, Scott. Anytime. Are you surprised that considering all the the hoopla around what's been happening with, with uh, the police commissioner's position and such that uh, they've quickly announced uh, uh, a, a, a new uh, commissioner uh, in the place of uh, Tavener announcing he's not going to chase this anymore about five days ago? Are you su- surprised that we got where we are here so quickly? I was a little surprised at, at how quick we got here. But then again, not knowing the actual... Uh, um, you know the the techniques they were using, or or, or what what they uh, what parameters they were using for the hiring and such like that. I'm going to say this. Uh, you know, um, I, I do know Tom Kareek, and and I would like to express my congratulations to him. Um, I was a member of York Regional Police for 30 years, and uh, Tom got promoted to uh, deputy uh, about a year before I left. Uh, I, I left uh, York Regional Police, and uh, so. I, and he also is uh, on the Board of Governors there at Seneca College, where I teach. So it's a little bit of a proud moment for both York Regional Police and Seneca College there. So uh, um, congratulations to him. And what I do have to say, um, even though I don't know the exact parameters they were using and such like that, after kind of, I'm not going to say fumbling the ball, but after kind of mur- the murky soup they were in with the first appointment with Mr. Tavener, they sure got it right this time. Tom Kareek is going to be an excellent head of the OPP. Well, you're helping us right here because we're getting conflicting reports, whether it's Carrick or Kareek, and you know him personally, so it's Kareek. It is Kareek. Okay, is correct. Thank you so much for that. So, what can no you problem. tell us about him? Well, you know, he was he was kind of a real. Uh, when I say he still is, uh, he he was he got promoted to deputy. I think maybe 2011 or so. And what I'm going to say is that eight years is probably the longest he's ever gone without a promotion. He's a really uh, upward, mobile, young officer. I remember he, he came on in 1990. I was already 10 years on the job at that point. And he kind of just shot the stardom type thing. He, I didn't work with him uh, in the detective offices or in the forensic unit where I worked or, or uh, in a uniform role. But he, he was somebody who uh, you didn't really know him that well. But all of a sudden you saw this guy shooting up the ranks. And, and he, he did. He went up the ranks very, very quickly. And, uh, but once he got where he got to and, 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 you know, you, you understood why he, he, he's very, very knowledgeable. He's very capable. And he was one of those guys. Sometimes you get a little bit of jealousy between officers when somebody kind of moves the ranks as quickly as they do. Never heard it about Tom. It was always like, uh, he was kind of like a hard to read, but on the other hand, always seemed like he was right on top of things and very capable in whatever position they put him in. He's an excellent communicator. I, I, I actually watched the, uh, knowing I was coming on this afternoon, I jumped on and, and watched the uh, press conference he did from uh, from York Region headquarters today. And he's, he's an excellent speaker and an excellent communicator. And, and he's also worked in all the areas there that uh, 
you know, in the intelligence unit, uh, dealing with guns and gangs, illicit drugs and, and human trafficking, which he kind of put forward as his, as his priorities there with the OPP. Um, but for, for somebody, you know, you, you've definitely got a guy with total integrity there and, and they really nailed it by, by getting this guy. That's, that's the way I feel about it anyway. And what about the rank and file? How would they feel about this? Any idea? Um, well, I think the York Regional Police rank and file are going to be shocked because mm. <laughs> Eric Jolliffe is the chief there now and has been for some 10 years, and they were they were 100% sure that uh, uh, Tom Carrick was going to be their next chief. Um, but, but the rank and file has, has utmost respect for, for, for Tom. He, he's, not, he's not a guy who... Um, he, he's a funny guy. He's the type of guy who um, you wouldn't really... Uh, you, would, you wouldn't count him a friend. Nobody would count him a friend, you know, with regard as the uniform officers. But if you ever had a problem, you'd sure feel comfortable going to him with it because you'd know you'd, you'd, you'd have your ear and, and, and you'd know, uh, sorry, you'd have his ear and, and you'd know he'd come up, he'd actually show, show some genuine concern and, and assist you with uh, some type of a resolution for it. So, so instead of going around, he's kind of struck you as the type of person that if you ever needed something, you could go to. What about the fact that he's coming from York Region as opposed to as opposed to uh, within the ranks of the OPP? D- yeah, d- does no, that, that say I, anything, I, or does that does that ruffle feathers? Yeah, uh, it, it may ruffle feathers within the OPP, and and that I I, I actually I, I don't know, but uh, my understanding was that was going to be the government's position anyway. Um, you know, with Taverner from Toronto, and then with uh, with. Um, uh, from York region. Yeah. I, I don't believe they were going within the ranks anyway, and I believe the internal ranks kind of, of the OPP knew that, and I guess most of them were accepting of it. I, I know one guy who wasn't that accepting of it, but uh, yeah. I, don't, I don't think Brad Blair was accepting as accepting of it as uh, uh, some of the other people might have been, but I think that is the direction that they had kind of indicated they were going to go. Uh, why do you think they would take that direction? Does this mean that, you know, there needs to be changes within the upper echelon of the OPP? And that's sometimes the way they see it. Sometimes, you know, and, and many times I've seen it within York Regional Police as well, within other police departments. You know, a lot of times when you feel you're in a position of strength and, and everything's hunky-dory, you promote from within. Uh, when when you have the feeling that maybe things are, you know, whether it's morale or whether it's uh you know, just just things are off the rails a little bit. Let's try and bring somebody in from outside who can uh, assist in turning the corner and 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 maybe uh, um, you know getting things back on track. And then the next the, the next promotion would be from within. That's that's what I've seen in, in my history of, in policing is that you know when there's a when there's a feeling that things just aren't uh, as up to snuff as they could be, they will go outside the department. And then, uh, and, and York Region's gone outside the department to hire as well, and, and then come back from within uh, on many occasions. So it's not something that just happens or is happening in this uh, particular instance. Uh, it's something that does happen. Uh, it's kind of a trend thing, you know. You, you, you know what? As a matter of fact, we saw the same thing happen here with the city of Hamilton as well. Is that right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, does this shed some light on perhaps why uh, Brad Blair was as upset as he was? When you say sheds, like I, the, the as for I don't know Brad at all. Never met him and, and don't know him. Um, I think he just Brad. Brad might have been putting forward the fact that um, you know the, the 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 murkiness with with regards to the the Taverner appointment. The, 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 you know the fact that he you know he was uh, a friend of the, the premier family friend and as well as they did change the rules you know once you change the rules to something and then appoint somebody who hadn't fit when the right. rules were different yeah the optics uh, you know right, right away you get a little bit of controversy there and uh i think that's what's uh probably got mr blair upset and and, and uh proceeding the way he did uh you talked about the optics of all of this and how it looked in in, in the last several weeks and such does now the appointment of Tom Kareek, does that change all that? Does it calm these waters? Is this going to keep everyone happy? Oh, I, I don't think it'll calm. Here's what I believe. I believe the opposition, the opposition government will still continue to beat down the door that there was some uh, inadvertent uh, behavior there on behalf of the, uh, the conservative government. But they won't be able to knock anything down. If they, if they look into Tom Kareek, they're going to find that... Uh, 
there, there won't be any controversy with regards to his hiring. His hiring, uh, they they couldn't have done much better. I really don't think. How big of a challenge is it for him to take over this position, considering the controversy that's been around it? I think you know what, I, and I saw a lot of the I, 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 during the press conference. There was a lot of questions with regards to Taverner uh, directed to uh, to Tom Creek, and, and he just you know that that wasn't his to answer, and, and he stepped away from the questions very uh, diligently and, and did the did the right thing there. I, I think it'll blow over once the once the investigation, the, the ethics investigation is done. I, I don't think it'll affect uh, uh, Tom Kareek in his uh, in his abilities to do his duties. I, I think he'll be able to uh, proceed uh, and, and and get up and and, and running uh, as quick as possible. And, and I don't think he'll have any issues with that. Uh, any idea whether he knew or knows the uh, premier at all? I heard him answer. He's never met the premier before, and. Uh, uh, one thing Tom Kareek doesn't do, lie. So mm. I, I, I don't think he knows the premier at all. So if you're uh, the rank and file of the York Regional Police, you're probably a bit disappointed today. You know what? I think they are. I think they are. I think they're thinking, they're proud. I think they, you know what? I, I think they're they're sure. disappointed in the way that they're losing a good guy. They really are. Uh, but they're also happy for him. Uh, so and, and proud that it was somebody from York Region who was, was chosen to, to move to that position. Uh, from what you know of policing and such, uh, is it sunny ways within the OPP? Are they happy there, or is is it good for them to get a change and and, and maybe some new leadership and new environment? Um, I, I don't know enough about the OPP internal thinking right now. There, to be honest, Scott, um, I got a couple of buddies that are OPP and they're doing their thing and uh, seem pretty happy. But uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure once they realize they've got somebody who's uh, a, a very uh, uh, excellent communicator, very knowledgeable, and very capable to do to, to, to perform the role that he's going to be asked to, to perform. I think they're going to be very happy with that. I really do. Uh, obviously, some controversy over the course of this process. Do you think this is going to calm the waters and keep everybody happy? Is this will this keep all sides happy? I guess I is my point. Well, I, I don't think the uh, I don't think the opposition government's going to let go of the fact that of the old not the yeah. first choice. <laughs> yeah, I think they're going to harp on that as much as they can and, and, and play that out until the investigations that are being done are completed. But um, uh, as for um, Anybody else, I think this is going to make everybody pretty comfortable that the OPP, uh, the, the OPP are in good hands. What is uh, Carrick's, uh, Carrick's uh, toughest challenge moving forward into a new force like this? I think, you know, it's just getting the confidence of the, um, of, of the men. You know, he'll have the confidence of the, uh, of the uh, senior officers very quickly. He's already well respected in the policing community. He's probably worked very closely with many, many members of the OPP uh, upper echelon in the past. So he he will be very well respected on that level, and I think they will be happy to have him. Um, it's just going to be getting the confidence of the uh, of the uniform officers, and I think uh, that that will be his biggest challenge. Uh, and I think he will because they don't know him. They don't know him from from uh, who, who he is, and uh, uh, they're, they're reading about him and hearing about him for the first time now. And uh, you know, because they were as surprised as anybody, this was going to be the, the, you know who, who their new boss is. Um, so that's going to be their biggest challenge. Is, is his biggest challenge is getting um, them their their respect and 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 their um, approval. Uh, what would be the difference uh, or, or challenges uh, comparing the two? Comparing, say, running uh, a city or an urban uh, force or, or a service that's mostly urban, or, uh, compared to something like the OPP, which is very spread out. Yeah, and and there's your the geography is is definitely the the biggest uh, difference. Although York Region is geographically is one of the largest municipal yeah. uh, police forces. Um, the OPP, of course, I mean, geez, you get up into northern Ontario and right throughout, uh, you know, you go from Ottawa to, you know, Sault Ste. Marie yeah. right across uh, Highway 17 there. So it, it's just a vast, vast geographic area. And, and plus the, the, the number of, um, uh, of uh, Indigenous uh, police departments and stuff right. like that that he's going to have to deal with. Although we, there, there are a couple within York Region, the Georgina Police, 
Um, uh, sorry, Georgina Island Police, I should say. Um, he ha- he does have some experience with that, uh, getting up to speed on that. And, and then border issues, maybe some border issues as well. But, um, you know, for, for the most part, I think he's uh, I think he's well prepared to handle it. What would his day-to-day issues be? What, what would it be like holding that position on any given day? Well, okay, now... The day-to-day issues for, and again, I, I I retired as a detective, not as a not as a senior officer. So, right. um, ideally, he's he's able to just make sure his senior officers. You don't want to have to micromanage the the the, the investigations. You don't want to have to, especially micro- in something that is spread out that much. Oh, for sure. Yeah. There's so many there's so many investigations over such a vast area. You don't want to have to micromanage any any of those cases. You want to make sure that the managers that you have in place are able to manage those investigations and you don't have to get involved. You just have to kind of comment after the, uh, after the investigation has been completed. So, you know, I, I just, I think he's just going to want to make sure he's got everybody in place and everybody who is competent uh, managing these, uh, these different areas. I think that's his, uh, uh, you know, that's kind of his, his daily, uh, his daily routine would be just to make sure that uh, when he comes into work, you know, there's a, always some troubleshooting to do and stuff like that, but just uh, kind of to make sure that everything's flowing along smoothly. Kevin, you're teaching now. Uh, uh, what do you see in the younger people that are coming up? Is it the same as when you were there? Do they say? Do, do they have the same desire, the same attitude? Is it different now? What do you try to instill in them? Uh, well, you know what, uh, and that's the one thing when I I teach through real life. It's it's great for me to be able to teach. I teach in the in the uh, some criminal psychology and in the police foundations, and I'm able to tell them real life police stories. The way the way policing really happens, as opposed to reading from a book and trying to learn the laws from the book. Uh, you know, the one thing that the books don't contain is the common sense. So I really try and push that on them, and uh, and, and and the fact that uh, you know. Uh, all the citizens out there that you're dealing with are human people. You know, they've got, they've got issues that, you know, don't, you've got to treat everybody just like, you know, they're having a good day or they're having a bad day. You know, you got to make sure that, uh, you know, you, you don't, uh, as a police officer, a person in authority, you don't want to be, um, you know, you, you don't want to, you have to enforce the laws and enforce, you know, uh, the various laws and such. But, you know, you really want to be somebody who is uh, out there uh, assisting the public as opposed to uh, um, the enforcement side of things more than that. If you were, uh, and I'm sort of throwing this out there for anybody that might be, you know, interested in this occupation, if you were in the position of hiring somebody, what do you look for? What are those qualities? Because you got to be a special person to do this job. Yeah, I, I look for people who are uh, both team players. Okay, team, being a team player, being able to uh, accept an assignment, uh, something you might not want to have to do, go in the corners and get that puck. I want to be out in front scoring the goals. No, we need somebody to go. You know, th- there's so many different roles in a police department. I, I look for somebody with with uh, who, who is a team player, who, who has leadership skills as well, you know, and uh, also being, a, you know, and, and one of the things I stress to, to, to anybody who wants to be a police officer is to be comfortable as a as a public speaker as well. You know, it's it's something that uh, you know. I, I know as a young officer, I was involved in a very very high profile case, and there I am, two years on the job, testifying at a murder trial in front of a judge and jury. And you know, if you're not a good public speaker, right? If, if you're not comfortable speaking, right, you you can really uh, kind of blow the case, so to speak. So I, I encourage anybody who wants to be a police officer. If you do get a chance to do any any public speaking of any kind, if it's a class presentation or whatever, whatever it is, uh, embrace it. Even if you're shy, even if you're uh, not, uh, if English isn't your first language, uh, em- embrace it and, and do your best, and you'll just get more and more comfortable at it. At the end of the day, it's all about communication, right? Oh, 100%. Uh, Kevin Bryan has been with us, professor at Seneca College, retired police officer. We're talking about the appointment of the new OPP Commissioner Thomas Kareek. Kevin, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
Speaking of the president, it wasn't that long ago that the president was celebrating his uh, second summit with Kim Jong-un of North Korea. This one held in Vietnam, uh, the first one in Singapore, I believe. And boy, after the first one, it was the world had been saved and Nobel Peace Prize and all this other stuff. And then the second one happened. And uh, I think Trump left before lunch. Or certainly did uh, sneak away before the celebrations were all complete and anything could be signed and all the par- uh, pomp and circumstance and such. Um, perhaps uh, a visit that was premature. Um, not as many wins, it appears, coming out of the second one as the first. And now we have new images that were released last week showing new activity at the satellite uh, launch facility in a part of North Korea. Uh, What has happened since the Vietnam summit? Are we moving forward? Are we moving backwards? Let's bring in Donald Baker, Department of Asian Studies, University of British Columbia. He is with us now. Donald, thanks for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Always good to talk with you, Scott. So it's been a while since the uh, second summit in Vietnam. Uh, Fallout from that, good, bad, anything accomplished there? How How are we processing this after the fact? I don't think anything good was accomplished. I think the... the Trump changed the goalposts. The North Koreans thought they had an agreement, and then Trump demanded more, and the North Koreans were pretty upset about that. So I think we're going to see their reaction within the next week or two when they shoot a satellite up into orbit. Why would Donald Trump change the goalposts like that at the last minute, especially considering um, you know the culture and such and, and, and winning trust and, and whatnot? I think he wanted a big win to distract American attention from what's going on with the hearings in Washington, D.C. and the Mueller probe. I think it's what it was all about. The, the second summit. Yeah. yeah. He, 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 he needs something to distract the American people right now. He, he needs to be able to say to the American people, look, I've been a great president. I've, I've ended this threat from North Korea so much that there would never be a threat again. That's why he wanted a big deal. He wanted, he wanted them to eliminate not only their nuclear weapons, but also all their chemical and biological weapons as well, without giving much in return. And the North Koreans weren't going to buy that. Why did Trump step back? Was that because advisors were saying, you're giving away too much here? Well, John Bolton was probably involved. John Bolton does talk like that. Yes, that's probably what was going on, too. John Bolton was probably saying, you can't give this much to the North Koreans. Uh, If you give them this much, they'll ask for even more. So, uh why don't we walk away and then they'll come back with a better deal for us. But that's not going to happen. North Koreans are very proud, stubborn people. They're not going to respond to Trump's uh, basically betraying them. because He thought they had an agreement before they met in Hanoi. They're not going to respond to that by easing their demands on the Americans. Um, you talked about them being proud and the culture and such. Uh, Donald Trump plays hardball. It's the art of the deal. Does walking away work in a situation like this? Well, what the North Koreans are going to do is going to make sure they get Trump's attention to show him that they didn't appreciate the way he behaved in Hanoi. That's why they're going to shoot him. I think it'll be a satellite launch, not a ballistic missile launch. But they're going to show Trump, look, we didn't agree to stop our satellite launches, and we never signed an agreement to stop our missile launches, so we can do what we want until you come back to the table and give us what we want. We remember seeing the uh, images of that table set for and the, the lunch that was missed. Do, do the North Koreans feel betrayed here? Do they feel that they've been played by Donald Trump? And, and, and how much a setback is that? Well, I think it is bad uh, because the North Koreans had been negotiating with some of Trump's representatives, and they thought they had a deal. And back out at the last minute like that, that's... That, it normally doesn't happen on the world stage. It's not just North Koreans who have said. Rumors now that China's not so sure that Xi Jinping may want to stay away from meeting Donald Trump because he may get stiff by Donald Trump as well. So it's really set a bad precedent for American behavior around the world that you walk away at the last minute. I mean, leaving, leaving the civil war on the table, the wine glass is ready to be filled, and you suddenly get up and walk away. That's not a way to behave as a head of state trying to negotiate an agreement with potential adversaries. Well, we've learned over time that that's exactly the way that Donald Trump treats his allies. What does it say now that that's the way he treats the dictators that he seems to have so much in common with? Well, it shows that he, he doesn't, does not know how to make a, a, a great deal. Like He claims he is a great deal maker. He really doesn't know what he's doing. That's quite clear. And he needs to listen to his diplomats. They would tell him how he has to perform to get agreements that will help the United States service national interest. He, does, he doesn't want to listen to them, so he, he's not going about it the right way. It seemed that him and Kim Jong-un had struck a chord, uh, a personal chord in some way. It seemed as if 
um, you know, they had uh, they had some sort of a uh, personal connection. Um, how how could how could Donald Trump misplay that? Well, again, I thought Donald Trump misunderstood. I think Kim Jong Un was doing what he knows how to do, which is playing up the Donald Trump ego. And Donald Trump, so naive, he bought into it and thought that Kim Jong Un was really going to give him what he wanted. Um, no, uh, Trump, Trump was being played uh, by Kim Jong Un, and and then Trump finally realized that that he wasn't going to get what he wanted, and so he walked out. And and Kim Jong Un now, as I mentioned earlier, he's now going to have to do something to get Donald Trump to realize he has to make, really negotiate, not just make demands on the North Koreans. What the something will be will probably be a satellite launch in the next couple of weeks. So how does this change, and what happened with this summit or didn't happen, how does it change the relationship between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump? Because, again, when they're side by side, it's almost like they're best friends. I know, they're in love. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bromance, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know, I mean, Trump does get offended very easily. He may, when that missile goes off in North Korea and sends a satellite in the orbit, Trump may get angry and feel betrayed and try to respond with some kind of either military force or threat of military force. So we, we know that Trump can turn on a dime against people who were his allies, like, uh, like Michael Cohen, and then turn against them very quickly. So he may do that, and that's very dangerous for world peace if he does. After having these first two summits and playing buddy-buddy with Kim Jong-un and selling that to the American people, can he go back to the talk of fire and fury and buttons and such? I mean, how's the American people going to react to that? I think that he could, but I'm always surprised at what they accept from Donald Trump. <laughs> it's quite amazing. He, he seems to be able to get away with things that no other president could get away with, including reversing his own positions. And so I think his base, anyway, would go along with him if he switches back to fire and fury. Okay, so uh, we remember that at, at one time there were missiles being tested over the peninsula and such, and, and that had everybody there uh, uh, obviously a little, a little tense. Uh, with the first summit, that kind of died down. So, as you suggested, is Kim Jong-un going to start lighting rockets again? I think he is. We've seen the preparation right now. Because he knows we're seeing the preparation. He knows our satellites are seeing what's going on. And so he's doing that deliberately. He's sending a message uh, that unless something happens soon to revise the friendly atmosphere of the talks in the next couple of weeks, he will shoot up. I, I think it's going to be a satellite launch. If that doesn't get enough attention from Washington, D.C., he may again resort to sh- shooting off ballistic missiles into the Pacific Ocean. And then we'll see how Trump responds to that. Uh, so uh, what are we seeing now? What is intelligence picking up? What are they seeing uh, that's happening on the ground in North Korea? Two things are happening. First, the site where they always have prepared their missiles in the past is in operation again. It seems to be preparing something there, and that something is getting ready to be moved to a second site that they've been preparing. That second site is a launch site. But again, we don't know what it is. We don't know what it's a ballistic missile or it's going to be a satellite launch. But they've prepared something that will be launched, and they're moving it to a launch site. So the Americans are picking this up from satellite imagery in space, correct? That's right. Yeah. So how does North Korea, uh, has North Korea and the U.S. spoke about this? There was, uh, you know, I just read something that they haven't, they haven't talked about any of this stuff since Vietnam. Uh, are, are, is the U.S. communicating their concerns? Are they talking uh, that, that each, to each other that they know that this is going on? As far as I know, there's nothing going on, no back channels at all right now. So, I mean, obviously, the, again, I think the North Koreans, knowing that the Americans were watching these sites, didn't try to hide anything. It's very much out in the open. Um, so they know the Americans know, and the Americans know that the North Koreans uh, know that the Americans know, uh, but they don't seem to be doing any talking about this. So I'll, I guess we have to wait and see how far Kim Jong-un will go to get Donald Trump's attention again. So uh, has Donald Trump been playing Kim Jong-un, or has Kim Jong-un been playing Donald Trump? I think Kim Jong-un has been playing Donald Trump. Kim Jong-un has won here. He wanted recognition on the world stage as a serious statesman, and by meeting twice with the U.S. president, he's done that. He's won, he's won that. So he came out ahead. Donald Trump looks like somebody who's a failed diplomat. That's what he looks like now. Kim Jong-un looks like somebody who gained a lot of prestige just from the very fact of the meeting. And what you said that this time he'll probably launch a satellite. What do we know about that? The purpose of the satellite is this—is this a dummy? Is this real? Is this surveillance that can help them? What do we know about the satellite that they'll launch? 
Well, they've, uh, they've shot up satellites before. And that, they've tried several times. They've had a couple of successes. And they're probably, you know, for weather, tracking the weather on, around, in and around the peninsula, maybe for communications. We don't know the purpose of their satellites, but they've, they, they've shown the ability to just put a satellite in orbit before, so they can easily do it again. So if they lob up a satellite, is that going to increase tensions? I mean, is that as bad as uh, testing missiles? Well, back in 2012, the U.S. and North Korea had an agreement to stop North Korean nuclear, uh, missile testing, and then a month later, North Korea shot up a satellite, and the Americans canceled the agreement because the North Koreans said, well, you didn't say anything about satellites. <laughs> so seeing how the Americans reacted in 2012 when Obama was president, I suspect that Trump will react at least the same way, saying this is a violation of an informal agreement that we had that you wouldn't test any more missiles. So any idea when this may happen? Uh they seem to be moving a missile towards the launch site now, but they could keep it there for a week or two. So we'll, I don't know. You know, I have to wait and see. But they do seem to be getting ready very soon to, to, to send up a missile. How will the, word re, the world react when that happens? I think there will be resolution at the United Nations. There may be talk about strengthening sanctions, uh, but that's about it. It'll be a lot of words. I don't think there'll be any military response if it's a satellite launch. Uh, what about the world's reaction to Donald Trump and his negotiations and the summits and this ending up where we are now with launching satellites again or testing missiles? I think it, it confirmed for the world what they already know that Donald Trump is not the great dealmaker he claims he is. I already mentioned that China now is, is beginning to rethink whether they should actually send Xi Jinping to bar Lago to meet with Donald Trump because he might walk out of the dinner. Uh, so basically, it's showing the world you can't work with Donald Trump because, again, they had an agreement. Their underlings had made an agreement, and Donald Trump suddenly changed the terms at the last minute. And so people don't like to see that in the world stage. So I think the rest of the world has had their, um, their concerns about Donald Trump's behavior confirmed. Uh, is China concerned that they'll be using, uh, Donald Trump will be using their presence uh, for domestic purposes as opposed to solving anything uh, between China and the United States? They probably are, but of course he wants to do both. He wants to trade agreement with China. That's very important. He claims, again, he claims he's a great deal maker, but he needs that for domestic purposes. There's an election coming up in 2020 in the U.S. and Donald Trump's underwater now. He needs to be able to push up his approval numbers. Uh, and so China's very much aware of that. They know what's going on in, in American domestic politics, and they also realize that Donald Trump ran on a platform of trying to ease of the uh, the, 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 the trade deficit the United States has with China. Right. And so they know that he needs to get a deal with them. But whether or not uh, they'll be able to give him the deal that he wants is a, is a real question, I don't, I can, which I cannot answer. We remember uh, after the first summit, the Singapore summit, Donald said that, you know, that's it, we're safe again, um, and, and that's great news. And then the second one, well, at least they're talking, you know, that's good. Uh, how does he sell this to Americans if they lob up another rocket? <laughs> that's a good question, but... Uh, well, Donald Trump, again, is very good at denying things that are clear facts. So maybe he'll say, he'll say oh, well, that's just a satellite. We don't have to worry about it. Uh, I, I told I told uh, Kim Jong-un that he could shoot up a satellite, even though Donald Trump has never said that to him. Um, and so he'll he'll try to get around it. Or he may say, this is, this is a, a call for us to take some more action against North Korea. I don't know how he'll respond. You never know with Donald Trump. He's one mood one day, one mood the next. You never know what he's going to do. How is South Korea feeling about all of this? They're very concerned. They want peace on the peninsula. They don't want North Korea to be testing any more missiles or nuclear weapons. And they, they don't like the, the lack of predictability in Donald Trump's policy towards North Korea. Can, like. can we say safely, or is this an over-assumption, that, uh, that, that communication is broken down between uh, North Korea and the United States? That whatever, was, that yeah. whatever was resolved there is, is we're back to square one? I think we're all back to square one right now, as we are. Because the North Koreans feel betrayed by the fact that the agreement they had was ignored by Trump. Uh, how is South Korea, uh, the rest of the world, uh, how do they feel that, uh, that this has fallen apart? Um, that, you know, they, they were making progress, it appeared, and, and, and now we are ended up where we are. Uh, how would the rest of the world view that? Is this a mistake Not, on Donald yeah. Trump's part? Yeah, I think, I think most people are blaming Donald Trump. Yes, they are. That's what I think. Yeah. So, I know the South Koreans 
not publicly, but privately, they're blaming Donald Trump. Uh, obviously, China doesn't want to be taken advantage of and and used as a pawn in in Donald Trump's domestic agenda. Uh, that being said, how do they feel that it seems that the negotiations have broken off between North Korea and the states? Well, obviously, they're concerned because they don't they want peace in their in their region of the world, and again, they they worry that how can you negotiate with a man like Donald Trump who changes his mind too often? This right. A major concern to the Chinese, to anybody in the world, really. Uh, is he more unpredictable than Kim Jong-un? Yes, I think so, actually. We know what Kim Jong-un wants. He wants to be respected, and he wants the sanctions lifted. That's quite clear. And he will do whatever he needs to do to pursue that goal. But uh, Donald Trump is the one who's predict. North Koreans went to Hanoi prepared to sign an agreement. Right. <laughs> and they were betrayed by Donald Trump. Are you concerned that this could escalate? Yes, I am. If it's not a satellite launch, if it's actually a missile test, I think Donald Trump will feel compelled to do something militarily, and then we could escalate into possibly even a war. I don't think that's going to happen, but it is, with Donald Trump, you never know. Uh, if, if they just do launch a satellite this time, which, as you suggested, they may, um, could it be that the, the the world may view this as just a satellite and nothing to worry? Do they have to follow this up with a test, a missile test, in, in order to really have the world concerned again? That's a possibility. If, if they feel like the satellite launch doesn't give them the renewed attention they want, they may follow up with a missile shot in the, to the waters off Japan or the waters off Guam. In which case, Trump will feel compelled to respond militarily. So what will Trump's response be if that starts happening? Like, will he meet with him again, or will he it be a button thing again? I think it will be a button thing again. I think, I think he will send American aircraft carriers uh, to the waters off the Korean Peninsula and start flying B-52s and B-70s off the, the, the coast of North Korea. Again, we'll go back to the old threatening fire and fury. Um, how do you how do you advance this discussion after taking the route that he just has? I mean, he's met with them. Uh, they've had two summits. Uh, he walks out. What would be the next plan of attack here? What, what what does he want from them? What does Donald Trump want from North Korea? He wants them to surrender. That's the problem. He wants them to give up all their nukes yeah. and their chemical and biological weapons with only a few of the sanctions eased. That's not enough. It's a surrender. Uh, so he's got to be able to give the North Koreans a lot more. North Korea asked for uh, all the economic sanctions to be lifted, what they wanted this time. And if Trump can now offer them that, then they can get negotiations going again. They didn't ask for the sanctions on military equipment to be lifted. They asked simply for the sanctions on food and, and other uh, economic items. If Donald Trump releases the, or relieves those sanctions, is it possible that we could see denuclearization in North Korea if he gives them what he wants? And, and why not do that if it feeds the people and solves the problem with the, with the arms race? Well, two things. First of all, denuclearization will be a long process. It can't really be done overnight. Yeah. And secondly, um, North Korea still feels they need some clear guarantees that America won't try to overthrow the regime. Right. Uh, which probably means America ending its alliance with South Korea, which I don't think America's ready to do right now. <laughs> so, um, so sooner or later in the next few days, we'll be talking about a satellite launch. I suspect so, yeah. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.